but to be somewhere where people were being fed by what I was saying and I was being fed by what they were saying and we could mix these passions. It was so invigorating for me. I really still feel the aliveness of it. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 196. My name is Gregory Haddock, the editor of today's show. The voice you just heard is Ayana Young of For the Wild, a podcast and book. And a little bit about the book, For the Wild is an anthology of the Anthropocene, focused on land-based protection, co-liberation, and intersectional storytelling rooted in a paradigm shift from human supremacy towards deep ecology. Ayana has the podcast again for the wild. Matthew Podolsky spoke with her via Skype and they had a terrific conversation. I think you're really going to like this show a lot. Uh, if you have not yet heard for the wild, it's almost 170 interviews with all sorts of leading scientists and ecologists and conservationists, naturalists. It's really an impressive body of work. And it's very clear that everything Ayana does is from a source of deep genuine curiosity and interest in the natural world and a sincere affection for its well-being. Really hope you enjoy this show. For a full list of today's show notes, check out wildlandsinc.org slash EOC196. Tell me your name and, and tell me a little bit about yourself. Oh, okay. Where do I begin? Well, I guess with my name. <laughs> my name is Ayana Young, and I am the co-founder and executive director of For the Wild organization and the host of our podcast, also called Wild for the Wild. And I would say I am a lover and protector of wild nature, and I am um, specifically quite obsessed with the temperate rainforest region from Northern California to Southeast Alaska. And I live out in the coastal Redwood mountain range in Northern California with a crew of wild fur children that I get to have the pleasure of spending my days with out here. And yeah, I'm really committed to intersectional justice as it comes to um, climate justice, uh, social justice, environmental justice, and where all of those intersect is really the nexus of a lot of my work. And yeah, I'm also a, sitting in a lot of gratitude for the frontline defenders who put their lives and bodies on the line to protect the last remnants of this earth that haven't been completely developed and raped and pillaged. Uh, I mean, I, th I think we heard some of that, you know, a lot of these these ideas are ideas that that you're exploring in your podcast series for the wild. Uh, but I mean, I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about sort of like your personal inspiration uh, uh, for launching the show. Mm. Yeah, well, I would say my personal inspiration was really my deep curiosity, my intense sense that something wasn't right here in terms of the dominant culture and consumer capitalism and imperialism and colonialism, and really feeling overwhelmed by it all and also quite lonely in this awakening into the Anthropocene and to climate chaos. And so I was 
in this place where I had just left Occupy Wall Street, where I was an organizer and co-creator of the Environmentalist Solidarity Working Group. I just couldn't believe everything that I was learning about so many pieces of the puzzle of global collapse. And I really needed to look to people that seem trustworthy in this time, indigenous elders and different philosophers and scientists and thought leaders to really help guide my understanding and also what I should be doing because I do think that being actively engaged is important, but the way in which we respond to the crisis, I also think is part of the crisis. So there's so many questions to really sit with, um, not only just the information of what is happening, but also that deeper spiritual information of how we respond to what is happening in our world. So that's how I really came to creating the podcast. And even though I've interviewed probably a, a close to 170 people at this point, I still feel just as curious as the day I started it. I luckily don't feel as lonely, but I also do still feel depressed at times and overwhelmed by the loss of life. And I am still striving for those connections and to build community with the folks through the show, meaning the guest, and through the wider for the wild community. So it's still something that really feeds me and nourishes me. And I feel like every week I'm shaped and shifted and challenged to broaden my understanding of what we're living through. I don't know. I mean, as you said, our response to this crisis is... Uh, is extremely important, but I think it's also really important to not neglect those feelings that you described, um, the feeling of hopelessness, depression, feeling overwhelmed. I think there are a lot of people that that feel those feelings and, and don't know what to do with it. And, and it, it feels really lonely, as you said. I mean, I, I can I can 100% relate to that. Um, so I think it's it's it really important what you're doing with uh, with your show for the wild. Um, I mean, I, I wonder, uh, you know, you talked about the Occupy Wall Street movement being sort of a catalyst for for you personally for uh, sort of uh, yeah. shifting your mindset. Like, you know, I'm, I wonder if we can go back even a little further. And I mean, was there like a turning point? Maybe you know maybe during Occupy Wall, St Wall Street or, or, you know, maybe it's just sort of a, a, a progression of, of events. But, um, you know, I, I, I feel like most people, you know, I, I often ask this, this question of, of our guests on Eyes on Conservation of like where the seed of, of you know, uh, somebody's interest in conservation or wildlife or the environment comes from. Um, and, and I would ask the same question of you, but then I'm also curious about sort of like if there was a turning point where you realized that, um, you know, it's like all of these ideas that are generally sort of talked about in like main the mainstream environmental movement, that it's not enough. Well, I, I'd love for just a, a few more details on your thought process on this so I can because I feel like I could go so many directions that I really want to <laughs> sure, yeah. hit the nail on the head. As a starting point, right? Because I, I yeah, I kind of threw like a whole bunch of questions at you at once. <laughs> 
I mean, as a starting point, like, you know, is, do you have like a childhood memory of, you know, anything that you could trace back to like sort of the seed of your interest and passion in conservation and the environment? Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned this, um, a lot as my kind of one of my, uh, foundational stories or at least parts of how I got here. And I wasn't raised in a conservation-minded, philanthropic-minded, activist-minded, environmentalist-minded <laughs> uh, family. So it definitely wasn't something that was talked about at the kitchen table or in community parties or anything like that. That was not, I didn't come to it like that. Um, what I find really interesting, though, is I was cleaning out my mom's attic and I was looking through some, you know, the stuff she had kept from elementary school and beyond. And there was a book of poetry that I wrote. I think I was in second grade and I was talking about how how much pain I was feeling over the forest being cut down and <laughs> the shallowness of humanity. And I was like, wait, <laughs> I, I was like seven years old or something. I was like, how did I know about this? Was I talking about the Amazon? Did they did they tell us that the Amazon was being cut down? Like, I, I don't even know how I knew that. And maybe it was just through watching the news peripherally when my parents had it on. So I do actually think that I had some type of inner knowing that there was this uh, intense sadness and grief of how we were treating the planet and each other and ourselves and um, just the lack of deep care that we were the, the kind of cultural lack of deep care that I was growing up in. I grew up in Southern California in a place that really wasn't um, so much about nature connection. There's a lot of people who surfed and I think potentially that was a part of their nature connection, but I didn't grow up surfing. And so I didn't have that. So um, yeah, it was really strange seeing this thread go all the way back to my little self, but I would say, yeah, there was there was moments throughout my childhood and teenage years where I felt rebellious or revolutionary and I was angry about factory farming and I was angry about the way that our government lied to us, even though I didn't understand what that really meant. I had inklings and I followed, I guess, certain news stories at that time, although I can't, you know, necessarily point my finger at them. And I was curious. And I think a big part of my journey has been this curiosity and really this kind of fearlessness. I would maybe say intellectual fearlessness when it came to looking for what I thought of as the truth and not wanting to shy away and not wanting to have that ignorance as bliss mentality and or looking at pictures. And if it was a picture of somebody who had been bombed in war, if it was a picture of a, a whale that had been you know, brutally uh, slayed in the oceans, I was always willing to look. And I was always willing to feel something about that. And I think that really has been um, a reason why I have gotten deeper and deeper into this work is because I think I just allowed myself to care where I think a lot of people are so afraid to care, which makes sense because there's so much pain and suffering in the world that it feels like sometimes if you let it all in, it will just explode you into a million little pieces. And then how are you going to go on and how are you going to be a functional person? 
But I think that my childhood really prepared me to be a highly functional person while also being able to be extremely um, emotional about the travesties of our time. And so, yeah, growing up, I had those little pieces, these little pearls that I never let go of. And I kept stringing them together until I got to grad school when I started studying environmentalism because I, environmental science, because I felt like I needed to know more, you know, baseline, tangible Western science, linear information about it beyond just what I could find through media. And that, though, also wasn't enough. And so again, this curiosity, this revolutionary curiosity kept peeking its head. I was like, no, but like this also isn't the full story. Climate science and the environmental sciences, like they're not talking about colonialism. And they're not discussing like how the land has been used because of a certain mentality and belief system. It was more like, oh, well, this is a resource or this is resource management. But it's like, this is so far beyond resource management. This is a spiritual crisis to even get to a place where we can look at the earth and call it a resource for us to manage in this really um, disconnected, linear way. And that isn't actually how relationships work. So yeah, it was so many things that came into my psyche and and I just never gave up. Like I, I never wanted, like I said, I never wanted to turn away. I always, and I still do feel this deep devotion. And, um, when I finally figured out, like, this is what I'm doing. I did, you know, sense take a vow. And I feel like I reavow every morning when I wake up being like, okay, here we go again. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit with this I'm going to sit with, you know, knowing that the salmon are collapsing in Alaska. And I'm going to sit with knowing that there's only 76 orcas left in the Salish Sea. And I'm going to, you know, sit with the travesties of the 2000 plus abandoned mines in British Columbia that are still poisoning the headwaters of these sacred rivers. And so, yeah, I feel like (laughs) going back to the initial question and like, is there a memory from my childhood? There's a string of memories. And I do think that I think we were all born to be connected and to be in deep relationship with the earth and with the land. And I think that um, I think that my journey to it, there was just certain door openings along the way that I wasn't afraid to say yes to or walk through. It seems to me like one of those doors was the Occupy Wall Street movement, right? So, um, mm-hmm. so I mean, you were, you were studying, you, you were in, in graduate school at Columbia when Occupy Wall Street Street began. Is that correct? Yep. That's how it happened. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, can, I wonder if you can like take us back to that moment. Like, like, um, you know, what, mm. I mean, do you, do you remember like, like hearing about that movement for the first time and like, what was your reaction and like the decision to get involved? I remember I was in. Um, British Columbia with my mom and we were on a little trip kayaking and um, and I remember seeing this magazine called Adbusters that I had looked at when I was a teenager and it had this ballerina on the Occupy Wall Street or not the, the Wall Street Bull and it said something like it said some something about revolution and the date. And it was like September, I don't remember, September 7th or something, New York. And I was like, what? I'm like, what is that? I'm like, okay. And I just felt 
something. I was like, wait, like, okay, <laughs> like, what is, what is this? What does this mean? Um, and I was super excited because I was going back to New York anyways to go back to school. So I was living in lower Manhattan. And so it wasn't very far. And I got on my bike and I had my dog, Mushy Bear, who's a little Australian shepherd. And she fit into this basket on my bike. And so I was like, okay, Mush, let's go down. And we got in, started making our way, weaving in through the taxis. And I came to Zuccotti Park. And at the time, you know, this was the very beginning. So there was people there, but it was very spacious. It was kind of just, it was almost like casual. It wasn't, it didn't, there wasn't a lot of media. It didn't, people weren't like, you know, totally riled up at that time, but there was energy there. And I remember, uh, you know, maybe an hour or so after I got there, there was the first public meeting and I forgot what the name they called it was, um, the, the general assembly and there they were talking about just the process of people being there. And I, I don't remember everything, but I was like, whoa, I've never been to this like general assembly. And I had never been exposed to organizing, political organizing, uh, activism. I had never been exposed to that. So it was like, this is so exciting to see people organize together to talk about these big issues in a way that it wasn't in a classroom and it was subversive and it was kind of breaking the rules, which I already kind of liked. And so I was super drawn to it. And then, um, they had the free lunch line. I was standing in line for pizza, which I am, I love pizza. And I, uh, was, there was this guy there and there was a lot of people there. And I was, you know, cause for me, I was like, oh my gosh, there's all these people who are willing to have these passionate conversations with me. And I was just so riled up and I was angry and I was talking about factory farming and pollution and I don't even remember what else. And people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had never, like I said, I'd never been in a community that people wanted to hear. Usually I was the bummer at the party or I was the annoying child at the kitchen table that my family or the people, my friends or whoever were like, Oh, come on, come on, Ayana. Like, we don't want it. You're, you're bringing us down. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're always saying the sky is falling. You're chicken little, you know, you're not, this isn't, this doesn't really affect us. And we really don't want to talk about this, but to be somewhere where people were being fed by what I was saying, and I was being fed by what they were saying, and we could mix these passions. It was so invigorating for me. I really still feel the aliveness of it. And so there's this one dude at, in particular at the end. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, just so riled up. And he got my number and he's like, I'll let you know when the next protests are. Cause he was living actually in Zuccotti park. He had ridden his bike across the country. And so from that point forward, uh, you know, it was a day later, he had texted me, Hey, there's a protest at the post office on in the, in the West side. And so I went down there and, um, you know, from that point forward, we just started hanging out. We had started the environmentalist solidarity working group together and I was never the same. I was never the same from, from that first day at Occupy Wall Street because I finally found a way that I could actually make this my life. And I didn't know how to do that before. And I honestly didn't even know that it was a possibility to be a full-time organizer, activist, uh, earth defender. And it was so exciting. And so from that, you know, since that point, which was, that was 2011, which is crazy that it's going on 
nine years ago, I just haven't turned back and I've never questioned this path and I've never, there's a, I can't think of it right now, but I've never questioned it. Now I've questioned how to be on this path. I've questioned integrity and I've questioned what are the ways that I need to be embodied and embraced and engaged with this work. But the work itself has been so crystal clear. And honestly, I feel so grateful for that sheer devotion and clarity because before Occupy, I felt really lost. Like I still felt, I still felt curious, but I felt this kind of chronic dissatisfaction with my life and with what I was doing. And I didn't know that there were other ways of being alive. And so, um, yeah, I'm super, I'm still so, so grateful that I have said yes to this path that has given me so much confidence and commitment to something that I really believe in. And I think that as humans, we all need a belief system that we can that we can rest in because um, otherwise life is just so challenging to navigate. And I think those belief systems that keep us accountable to the earth and to each other and to justice and integrity and ethics and morals, um, I think we really need that as a species. Absolutely. Tell me, you know, what was, what was the next step on, on that path? You know, after where did you go uh, uh, after Occupy Wall Street? Well, so Occupy, as wonderful as it was, you know, it wasn't going to last forever. And it got Homeland Security came in and took everything down and put up the gates around it so nobody could organize in that space. And really, when we lost Zuccotti Park, we really lost the connection to one another and we lost the momentum. And so winter came and I had really always wanted to go down to South America. And um, actually the guy, his name is March, who I had met at Occupy. We ended up falling really madly in love, activist type love, which is the best because <laughs> um, it's so uh, just entangled with so much um, really love for the earth and for love for beyond our own personal selves. And so he had lived down in Peru for five years. So he was like, oh, well, you know, I speak Spanish and Quechua. Like, you know, I can help you navigate there. And he also, because he was kind of this more, I would say, rugged individual at the time. Um, and what I mean by that is like he, you know, was living on his bike for a year plus living at Zuccotti Park, sleeping on the ground where for me, I had never camped a day in my life at that point. I find myself in Peru. We had rented a little car, driven all the way down through Tierra del Fuego. And what was really um, important about this time was here I was, somebody who cared deeply about the earth, who had just been um, awoken to being able to be an activist or knew what that was, being able to be this political organizer. But then that was blended with having my first experience with the wild. And Patagonia, for those of you who have been there, know that it's extremely wild and a remote place. And now, again, this was also 10 years ago almost. So, um, you know, there was, I remember just days upon days on unfinished dirt roads. Um, and there was no 
cell service or radio, anything. And so at the time, March had podcasts, which I didn't even know what those were, but we were listening to these apocalyptic podcasts really about just the conundrum we're in and and really hearing it from people that were pretty, yeah, apocalyptic. So I'm for my first time, like listening to these apocalyptic podcasts, just leaving Occupy Wall Street, being in this extremely wild place, camping for the first time in a very challenging place to camp. And I was just completely broken open. It was it was just an incredible moment. It was like fireworks happening inside of me. And I was so it just so deeply enraptured by being somewhere so wild that when we came home about two months later, the desire to, you know, well, the desire to create a podcast didn't come till later, but the desire to, you know, all of those things were kind of born there, like wanting to be in the wild, wanting to conserve the wild, wanting to share some type of educational platform with people who were in their ways, working to protect and defend the land. It just all culminated. And so from there, you know, we came back to the city and uh, within a few months, I moved out of my perfect little apartment that was a dream of mine for so long. And I was like, okay, bye city. And I never went back to any city. Uh, we went directly to a cedar cabin in the forests of Northern Oregon and then to rural Pennsylvania um, and then just traveled in a little... <laughs> Well, it was it was a big truck actually. Her name was Daisy at the time. She had, she ended up going over a cliff with me later on my way to Alaska. But um, you know, I got this '92 diesel Dodge truck and an old 1960s camper, and from that point, I just explored explored the forest so deeply, so many dirt roads, so much map mapping and um, exploring maps and understanding old growth forest versus second growth versus clear cuts. And really the love affair has never dwindled from that moment, but I'd say it was such a momentous time for me because it was the culmination of being interested in this medium of podcast and wild conservation, wildland conservation and political organizing. And, you know, when I think about it now and I retell the story to you, I'm like, oh, wow, it totally makes sense with what I'm doing. <laughs> because, yeah, everything I'm doing was really now was not not necessarily it's completely born of that time, but I would say mostly. Gotcha. And and so you you eventually ended up in in Northern California, um, in like the sort of coastal Redwoods area, right? Yeah. Yep. Which is where I'm talking to you now from. And so what, I mean, how did, how, how did that sort of become your, uh, permanent landing place or semi-permanent landing place at least? Well, after I had figured out that I really was so deeply in love with the forest, I knew that I wanted to protect this temperate rainforest region. And um, the part of the story that I didn't mention was as a child, I was a professional um, actress and model from nine months old. And so I was, uh, I was a working child and I was in the entertainment industry for 18 years. And 
the money that I made, my mom put into the stock market. And for me at the time, like I really didn't know, I didn't know up from down. I was just a kid doing the work. When I was a teenager, I started to feel the the ways that I really didn't like the entertainment industry and it was just so hard on women, especially, but but you know, being a young woman trying to find myself and find depth in a it's very shallow and very fickle and very about aesthetics and not about um the heart of the matter. It was, it was really strange. And so, you know, when I was old enough to know how to quit, I did. And then, um, I went to college, which really changed me, changed my trajectory. But when I, um, was 18, my mom's like, okay, like you can pay for your college and you can buy yourself a car because, you know, you made this money and it's in the stock market and you can take stuff out and, and you can, um, have yourself a nest egg. And then, you know, the funny thing was, is Occupy Wall Street, you know, 10 years ago, and I'm organizing these marches against Wall Street, but yet it was so against my integrity. And at the time, too, I didn't realize how people, just the sheer hypocrisy of this world, but I sold out of the market at that point. And so I just had my little nest egg and I knew I needed to do something with it when I figured out that I was completely obsessed with wild nature and with the temperate rainforest, um, that's the temperate rainforest. Um, I, I wanted to conserve land with that, with that money. And so when I was talking about all the dirt road travels, I could afford to protect all over the country into Canada. I was on a mad search. This place came up. It was this, um, this place that I live is a mountain that had been logged a few times, I think twice. Other than that, there's been no human development. So there's logging roads and there's forest. And I came out here and set up my tent and had the podcast at that time. And for the first two years, it was just being with the land with no running water, no electricity, um, washing my like one dish in the creek <laughs> over and over again, and just living in a really stripped down bay. Um, and really trying to understand what do I need to live in this world or not what I've been told to need. What are those modern pieces? Because I know that all the pieces of modernity and those resources are extract that's polluting, that's very detrimental. So it's very important for me to not take things for granted and to not be entitled this luxury life that many of us have in the United States specifically. And, and when I say luxury life, I even mean like clean running water, like that is a luxury compared to what other have or electricity whenever we want it. I mean, those things are luxuries. Gotcha. And yeah, that's, that's so fascinating. I mean, like maybe just to hear more about like your big picture sort of plans and goals with, with this land, right? I mean, it sounds like you're, uh, I mean, you're, you're developing plant nursery. Um, I mean, what's, what's kind of the, the big picture, like mission and, and, and goal? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I had had a message from the forest. They said, protect us and, and protect our children and help propagate our children. I remember after my first indigenous consultation, like my ego was very uh, deflated. So I was like, but I thought I had this great idea. And shouldn't we just do these things? Because the earth and the urgency. 
But I was like, oh, actually, you know, I had to create deeper relationships. And the ur- the urgency is real, but I don't know if replying to the urgency with more urgency is actually going to be more helpful, whatever that means. So, you know, whatever context that could be in. So I really had to think about things more. And I was already kind of in a way, slowing myself down in other ways. Like for instance, I was really committed to figuring out how to slow down the use of plastics in nurseries. Because if anybody's seen a commercial nursery, they're just filled with plastic from the plastic pots to the plastic poly pipe, um, to all the little irrigation pieces, to the hoop houses, to the trays to the tables it's to the hoses to the hose it's just like crazy i mean it's plastic everywhere and even when i looked into plastic pots for this project for a million pots i think it was close to four hundred thousand dollars and these pots that were uv rated still only last three to five years so it's like what i'm gonna buy a million pots for four hundred thousand dollars that are gonna last three to five years and then go into some landfill somewhere that aren't gonna really be recycled because that's not even so much of a thing. You know, just like this doesn't make sense. I do not want to keep I I can't do this work in a way that disregards and uh creates externalities with the resources um that it's using. And so like right now we're I've experimented with a bunch of different types of pots, whether they're recycled pots from wineries or pots made out of sawdust that those didn't last. So that didn't work. But uh, now we're doing these in-ground pots, which I think are really cool. And they've actually worked out really well so far where we're like compacting this clay soil that's underneath the topsoil. We removed the topsoil from these areas and created these just like compacted clay poles basically and but then you know the question of well what kind of potting soil do you use because potting soil with perlite and lava rock that's mined from somewhere it's like i don't want to take down a lava field so that i can grow redwoods like again like these things don't make sense to me but we're also in a system where things don't make sense and we're also in a system where it's really challenging to uh, make decisions or make choices that aren't detrimental to somewhere, somewhere or to some someone or some creature somewhere else. So definitely the nursery is not some purest dream, idealistic dream where like no resources have been used and no fossil fuels have been used, like no doubt fossil fuels have been used. And there's definitely materials that I have used that I haven't been completely aligned with, but I'm really trying to find ways to do less harm. So not that I think that I can build this nursery with no harm done, but I'm really focused on thinking everything through and trying to dig down deep enough so I can find ways that are less harmful than others. And um, so, yeah, long-term vision is to be working more deeply with local communities, really having a type of Noah's Ark of these um, species of the temperate rainforest and to be creating ways that are low technology um, so that not only we can be using less resources, but ultimately I would love other citizen science, grassroots folks, just normal folks to take up seed collecting and to take up growing native plants in their yards 
And I want to be able to teach people how we've done it so that they can do it in a way that they don't feel like they have to buy all of the accoutrements of modern day plant propagation to do it. Yeah, that's that's super fascinating. Um, there's a lot of I've 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 been in, in, involved not not directly, but I, I've I've been um, involved sort of on the sidelines in like some sort of native uh, plant restoration projects associated with you know shrubland uh, ecosystems in and around where I live, uh, sort of sagebrush step type stuff. And it's, it's interesting because it, I mean, it's, it's, it's all the same issues, right. Associated with all these problems associated with restoration. And I think, you know, I mean, one of the central issues that it comes down to, which I think you explained really well is this kind of juxtaposition between like this, this urgency, because we're in a crisis and, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, so it's like, there is this, um, inclination to like, just do things as fast as we possibly can because we feel this urgency from that crisis. But then this realization that like, we don't know enough to do these things the right way, you know? And it could be that, you know, uh, if, if you do the restoration the wrong way, it can cause more harm than good. Um, and I mean, we've seen that a, a lot in, in shrubland restoration, um, you know, in uh, close to the area where I live, um, where, you know, these huge projects, huge restoration projects were done in, in troubling ecosystems. Um, and, you know, and then it, it turns out that, you know, because the seeds weren't sourced correctly, um, or, you know, this big machinery was used, uh, to, to do the planting and it breaks up the soil and makes it easier for even more invasive species to move in. Um, there's all these complexities and you just realize that it's like, we don't, we don't even know enough to like do this the right way. So like you have to take a step back and and slow down, as you said. Um, so I think, yeah, that's, um, it's, it's a really important point. And, you know, I think it, 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 it sort of comes back. I'm going to try to kind of, I'm going to bring this back to like your podcast series for the wild, because, you know, as you said at the beginning of the interview, I mean, this is sort of one of the central ideas that you're trying to explore. Um, and so I wonder, you know, you're, you're sort of, you're doing these two projects. Uh, it sounds like simultaneously, right. You're trying to develop, um, this, uh, this native plant, nursery um you're also producing this podcast series like i i i'm I'm interested in sort of um how those two projects inform each other and i wonder if like there have been you know specific interviews uh that you've done for the podcast series that like really stand out or like really inform the restoration work in an interesting way yeah gosh so many interviews uh, that stand out. Most recently, I did an interview with Bio Komalafe on slowing down in urgent times. So definitely that that more existential, esoteric questioning of how to slow down is just so ripe in that interview. One of the most persistent and sticky habits of perception that has possessed those of us gestating in modern civilizations is we tend to see things as separate from each other. The mic is separate from the one who speaks into the mic. The podcast is separate from the computer that broadcasts the podcast. Ours are separate from their drivers. We are separate from our technologies. 
we see things as boundaries and as atomized in some Newtonian, Cartesian um, sort of way. And it's a good strategy. It's a strategy. And it really helped me. Um, yeah, it really helped me feel more embodied in that type of idea because I'd, you know, I'd heard about slowing down and I'd had friends tell me to slow down. And, but I, that interview really felt like it solidified it for me. It was so, so beautiful. And so I definitely recommend anybody who's interested in that topic to listen to that. He's an incredible speaker, poetic and deep, and he could say anything and it sounds good, honestly. So he's really amazing to listen to. Um, and then there's another interview I just did with uh, Dr. Max Liberon, who's a feminist, anti-colonial, marine plastics scientist from Greenland. And so ceasing the production of plastics, particularly packaging, which accounts for about 30% of plastics, almost no matter where you are in the world, roughly 30, that's the solution. And most of, or even all, maybe just most of the people I know who study waste and waste systems always say, hey, if you want to deal with waste, go upstream. Once you got downstream, like it's just there. And you, you're right. You're absolutely right. That it's just, a, you just defer it. You just shuffle it around. You shuffle it into a landfill. Well, that's going to get flooded under climate change. And even if it's 10,000 years, those plastics are going back in the water. Once Boylan Slats cleanup array gets those plastics, where do they go? They go in landfill. Ocean is downhill from everything. Those plastics will end up back in the ocean. And she just blew me away because I'd been feeling pretty discouraged by a lot of Western science, um, just in the frameworks and the questions that were being asked and the questions that were left out. And the way that she and her team are doing these studies around plastics, which again, like that whole topic is something that I've felt very connected to for a long time, just this waste, this pl these plastics and the waste that it creates and the predicament that we're in. So the topic itself was very interesting, but also hearing how her and her team worked with First Peoples of Greenland and worked with communities to be uh, really supportive of the communities in which they're doing their studies. I think that connection is so important and oftentimes, most of the time, just completely not even uh, not given any attention that scientists can just come in and take what they want and leave and not even share that information with the community or even ask the community, what is it that you think we should be studying? Because hell, like they're the people who live there. They're the people who know best, like where, where the issues are going to be. So, um, I really appreciated her for so many reasons and for like conservation or forestry episodes, I think back to an interview I did with Diana Beresford Kroger, who is an incredible doctor, scientist, just mad woman, just amazing. But now I think it's the new world of the modern world, not just North America. I think we have sold nature away. We have put a price on nature. We have put a price on a tree. We've put a price on all the things that are sacred to us, like the air and the water and the fish in the sea and all of the, the, the sacred things to do with love, the love of a child, the love of people. All of those things have got a, a dollar value on them and a money value. And they shouldn't have because they're part of the commonage, the great commonage of the human mind. 
you know, having so much knowledge, she was one, I think the last knowledge of the ancient Brehem knowledge of uh, ancient Ireland. So she has that as her childhood upbringing, but then she was um, very like highly educated as a doctor in Canada. And, but then she turned herself over to plants. And so, I mean, just the, the ways that her mind work in how she talks about forest and replanting the global forest and species diversity really, really inspired me. And this was a, like maybe three years ago. And then I also interviewed um, Peter Wellenbin, who wrote The Hidden Life of Trees. And that was a really beautiful interview and really helped me think about planting trees from seed um, rather than have and and planting them direct seeding rather than having to do the whole pot thing. And so that kind of helped shift my understanding of possibilities of how to work with forest reforestation projects. And there's, I think this other thing he had mentioned in that interview where he was saying something like, I don't know if he was saying it was the birds or the squirrels. They're like, you know, he was kind of saying like, well, who's the best person at planting this kind of oak? And he's like the scrub jays, like the scrub jays are actually the best and most efficient propagator of this particular tree. Like they're going to do it the best. They've shown, you know, they, they do it the most effectively. So he was even, I think he was maybe even mentioning like collecting these seeds and putting them out in a tub and like letting the scrub jays do the work. The scrub jay uh, always wants to be on the safe side. It just needs, let's say, 1,500 um, beech nuts, uh, but it's storing around about 10,000. Uh, yeah, I want to be on the, the safe side. So that means that 8,500 beech nuts are able to become seedlings in, in the next spring. And seedlings with an intact root system, they were seeded in a natural way. And that uh, with just a little cost, for example, when we plant a beech tree that costs one euro or let's say one dollar, and um, uh, we need for, uh, for a square kilometer, let's say, I think two million seedlings to have uh, something like, okay, forest. It's not a very good forest, but it's okay with uh, two million plants. So that costs $2 million. And when we let do the birds, the job cost for a square kilometer, perhaps let's say $200. And so again, like these are, these were concepts that I hadn't even considered and not to say I'm doing that now, but, and not to say that's what I will do, but people who have these thoughts, they spark ideas of possibility inside of me that allows me to see outside of the box or allows me to see outside of my own conditioning or my own areas of education or what I've been told to be like, oh my gosh, actually there's whole other worlds to do this. There's so many ways to do this work that I'm completely unaware of because it's not the dominant way to do the work and it might not be easily accessible. So um, yeah, those are definitely some people. And there's also episodes, Dune Lankard on the day that Water died, who um, he's an EAC land defender from Cordova, Alaska, who has been working with the Exxon Valdez oil spill for the last 30 years. And he's an incredible land defender. Originally, they paid a $286 million compensatory damage, which was for loss of immediate fishing income. When we won the $5 billion verdict in 1994, Exxon didn't want that precedent set. And that's why they appealed it 17 times. 
because they didn't want to be in a situation where they created a precedent where industry actually had to pay for messes and cleanups of uh, spills of this magnitude, not only in Alaska, but around the world. And so when the justices decided to take that punitive damage case, they didn't do it to see that justice prevailed. They wanted to see that just us prevailed. And so it allowed the corporations and these developers to continue to have oil spills and do damage to different people's way of life without fair compensation. And I've learned so much from him. He's now one of my dearest mentors. And we talk weekly about protecting land and um, conservation easements. And, and so even though that's not necessarily restoration, it definitely has been an episode and a person who has been hugely influential in my life. I definitely I can relate a lot to, you know, these a lot of those types of experiences. Right. And I mean, I think specifically like, you know, one of the topics that we've explored a lot on Eyes on Conservation is, you know, this this idea of like asking the question of like, like, what is science? Right. Because I think a lot of people immediately when they hear that word, they immediately think of like the sort of stereotype of Western science. Right. Um, and, mm. and I think it's important to sort of broaden that definition. There are just so many other ideas out there. And uh, it's definitely something that that I've learned a lot through a bunch of the interviews we've done with Eyes on Conservation about like, you know, how and, and for me, like I come from a science background, right? So like that, you know, I, I, I was I am trained in this sort of like Western science world. And, you know, a lot of the interviews we've done for Eyes on Conservation have sort of opened up this whole new like conception of like what science can mean, what it can be, and the types of questions that you can ask, mm. you know. I wonder, I mean, uh, maybe you can just uh, talk a little bit about like what the what the future holds for uh, for the wild. Um, I mean, like what what directions are you uh, thinking about taking the show in? I mean, are there any sort of like new, exciting ideas that you're uh, exploring or looking forward to explore? Gosh, I'm sure there's ideas that I want to explore that I don't even know what those ideas are yet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm I do want to explore. I really want to keep exploring and expanding my understanding of traditional ecological knowledge and ways of working with the forest um, in in yeah low modern technol technological techniques. Um, so I, I want to explore more of that. I I really am so committed to learning about frontline issues and supporting folks that are, yeah, like what's happening um, in Unistoten with the pipeline defense um, with the First Nations folks in British Columbia, things, you know, things like that. I feel very drawn to, you know, Bristol Bay, Pebble Mine, the EIS statement, I think is going to come out in June. So that's something that I feel really committed to learning more about and supporting, um, also protecting the Copper River Delta from coal mining. So definitely, you know, my commitment to resource extraction, stop to halting resource extraction feels really important to me. And so I think with the future for the wild that we will continue to 
uplift those stories through our media channels. And then with the nursery, you know, like I said, I want to keep building this Noah's Ark and I want it to be beautiful because I think beauty is an important aspect of any work. I think cleaving on to beauty is what in so many ways allows us to do this work. Like beauty and love kind of go hand in hand because there are these unexplainable phenomenons that draw us to the work and keep us connected to it. So I definitely am connected to the beauty aspect of the nursery project and the creativity of it and and the artistry and the scientific aspects and just, yeah, being able to look at it through a very holistic lens. Yeah. And I would say with For the Wild, I, I would say, um, yeah, I guess those three things, community organizing and community uplifting through the media and then the restoration, re- reforestation projects through the nursery and then um, other large conservation projects that come to me through people that I meet and build relationships with. And and yeah, what I was about to say is I I love For the Wild and I love that we're small. We're a small grassroots organization, group of folks who um, are really committed and we're nimble and we're flexible. And I really want to commit myself to making things as simple and uncomplicated as possible. You know, I never want to become a Greenpeace or a Sierra Club or some big organization with a bunch of people and processes and systems. Like I want to stay small. And I think that for me, I can do my best work when I'm really focused and close to the projects. So yeah, I think the future is going to be so full and the work is going to be so beautiful. And overall, I feel extremely committed to the relationships that are being built through these projects. And I feel committed to each new person that I spend time with. And so, yeah, I feel like it's just going to keep building in this really deep and loving way. Awesome. Well, Thanks a lot for, you know, taking the time to chat with me uh, about, you know, lots of really fantastic stories. And I, and I would strongly encourage all of our listeners to check out uh, For the Wild. Lots of really amazing interviews. And yeah, thanks again for, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on today. It's been a joy. That was Matthew Podolsky and Ayana Young of the For the Wild podcast. I'm hesitant because I was told recently that I sound like a radio DJ when I do this. So um, my name is Greg Haddock, and I am uh, one of the uh, producers of the Eyes on Conservation. I edited today's show from Matt with his interview with Ayana. Um, want to do something we're really trying to do as much as we can to reach out to the audience and really trying to find out how we can communicate with you guys there's a huge push from all of us to try to find out what it is you want, uh, what it is, include your voices. It's no fun if we do this in a vacuum. So if you are out there and you want to tell me that I sound like a radio DJ, you can do that. Uh, just check us out. Uh, you can email us or send us a voice note at info at wildlensinc.org. You can also send us a voicemail and we will include that audio on the show. And that number is 208-917-3786. 
Uh, for the last show, we asked people like, what is the one activity that you are dying to do? Uh, dying may not be the best word to use given the context, but what's the one thing that you're really excited to do outside uh, after all of the coronavirus passes or after just winter months come to a close? Uh, we had a lot of great responses. Tyler wrote, camping, need some camping time soon. Lisa writes, uh, wrote to us, sitting on a patio with a band and a beer. And I could not agree with that anymore. Ann Lee wrote to us, concerts. Uh, Kristen, another producer of Eyes on Conservation, says she just wants a hug. And uh, she's in San Francisco. So if you're on lockdown in one of the busiest cities like that, I imagine getting a hug would just be like the best thing right now. We're thinking of you, Kristen. Virtual hugs. That was for you. Uh, Benjamin writes, uh, well, seeing as I just moved closer to the ocean and the beach, I'd love to stroll along the pier and get some sand beneath my toes. Excuse me, between my toes. I can not disagree with that at all. Uh, Michelle also writes camping. Camping was a big one. Uh, Hannah, our communications manager, uh, also wrote that she wants to go camping. I also said that I want to go camping, Hannah, um, although it sounds like everybody thought that I just wanted to do disc golf. Um, which by the way, let's be honest, if you, if you could just get outside, have a beer, throw a disc around, <laughs> how bad is it going to be? You know what I mean? Um, rogue detection teams wrote to us, get out on a field project, searching for rare wildlife with our conservation detection dogs. That actually sounds super badass. So, um, you should send us photos of that or something. Cause that sounds really cool. Uh, Dashiell wrote, Riding to rivers on my bike to fish. Uh, that also sounds awesome. Getting out to the river, riding your bike out there sounds awesome. I'm a terrible fisherman, so I can't super identify. I fished for years and then was like, why am I doing this? This is a total waste of time. I uh, also got a couple uh, voicemails in. This one from Laura. Hi, EOC. This is Laura, Greg's cousin. Um, we are excited when coronavirus ends. We're going to get married in July. Um, and then as far as winter ending, here in New York City, it's been about 52 degrees every day. So we have already started our spring activities. I've been going on daily runs outside. We've been sunbathing on the porch while practicing social distancing. But we can't wait um, for summer to come and for us to be able to go out on the beach. Can't wait to hear the podcast. Bye. Nice. Uh, yeah, full disclosure, that was my cousin. So uh, um, thank you very much, Laura, for sending that in. Uh, yes, her and her fiance were supposed to get married this summer. And obviously, this has thrown a huge wrench into all of that. So I'm thinking about you, Laura. Uh, and I really hope I'm, I'm glad you're at least having a chance to get out and, and enjoy some of that weather. So got another one here from Brant. Hey, guys, uh, this is Brant calling from Los Angeles. Uh, due to coronavirus, I'm currently trapped in my tiny-ass apartment alone. I'm about to go take my government-sanctioned walk around my neighborhood where I plan to enjoy beautiful landmarks such as the burnt-out husk of a 7-Eleven and a travel agency that no one's gone into in two years. So, looking forward to that. Um, up until a few days ago, we were actually allowed and encouraged to go out and hike as long as we still practiced uh, social distancing while we were out there. But apparently uh, people decided that meant to go have a barbecue and a frisbee golf tournament on the beach. So they closed all the trails and all the beaches in Los Angeles County uh, because we can't have nice things. 
I would say that the thing I'm looking forward to the most uh, when we're done with this, when we get to go outside again, is honestly just getting away from the news and the social media cycle that my brain has me running on constantly right now. I mean, I fully support and I understand the quarantine, especially in these high density areas like LA, but getting outside has always been my medicine. So I can't wait to get out there again. I hope this time really helps people understand what they can and they can't take for granted and what they need to protect. Um, yeah, thanks for doing all the work you guys do. Thanks for everything you put into this podcast. We appreciate it. Uh, take care. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Brant. Really, really, really appreciate that. I guess I'm going to talk to our uh, communications manager, Hannah, and we'll have to organize a uh, frisbee golf uh, competition, giant barbecue. No, that's a terrible idea. At a minimum, Brant, really glad that you can enjoy the uh, burned out, the local burned out 7-Eleven. So uh, some some perks to being out in, in Hollywood, I suppose. Um, Brant and Laura, but not excluding two, are actually uh, patrons of our Patreon campaign. That is their way of contributing to the work that we're doing on the Eyes on Conservation podcast and um, it's, it's a way for us to expand on the work we're doing, but also get deeper into the breadth and depth of how we do it. So um, please consider going to patreon.com slash collective and consider making a pledge for like a buck a show. Uh, there's a ton of people who listen to the show. It would be so awesome if we could get uh, more people to go out there and do that because it will really enable us to do some awesome, awesome work. And actually... That list of patrons just keeps growing and growing. You don't have to be a patron to leave us a voicemail, but it is strongly encouraged. Patrons right now, Benjamin, Brant, that you just heard, Candice, Chaz, Devin, Diane, Graham, Greg, Jim, Juliana, Justin, Kristen, Laura, my cousin, Matthew, Rob, Ronnie, Sean, and Todd. Thank you very, very, very much for supporting us and for being such great contributors to the work that we're doing. We really appreciate you. Hope everybody is staying safe and well during this awful, bizarre time. Please keep those messages coming in. Please keep those voicemails rolling in. We really, really, really want to do the best we can to create more of a family here at the Eyes on Conservation podcast, the podcast child of the Wildlands Collective. If you like today's show, please do check out Ayana's website. That was kind of DJ-ish, radio DJ. Please check out Radio Ayana Young for the wild. Uh, I also do hockey games, so enjoy that. And um, also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to check out the giant catalog of podcasts from the Eyes on Conservation going back years. Lots of good stuff in there. Almost to episode 200, so pretty cool. My name is Greg Haddock, signing off. There is no planet B.